This podcast was recorded at 9.30 a.m. Jakarta time on 17 November. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the show. That's Kevin O'Rourke over there. And I am with Jeff Hutton from The Straits Times. Oh, yeah, you're from Reformacy Weekly. That old reg. Yeah. <laughs> old. Emphasis on old, yes. <sighs> By no means. Well, it's been going on for a little while, right? When was your first? Yeah. Uh, uh, I guess this is uh, 18 years now, November. I started November 2003. November 2000. Well, wait a minute. So are well, we looking at the anniversary month? Yeah, it is. That's right. Uh, well, yeah, great. It's a completely, uh, I don't know why we're belaboring this point. Um, but we've got something f- actually far more serious to discuss, and that's um, at the passing of a dear friend of Joe ours, Cochran. Joe Cochran, a uh, respected journalist. I have uh, deep affection for Joe. He was really the first guy who helped me out when I first arrived in, uh, in Jakarta. As a as a freelancer in 2012, he was with the uh, J- uh, Jakarta Foreign Correspondence Club, I guess, at that time, right? He was the president. He was also the c- contributor for the Economist at that point before he w- moved to the New York Times. Yeah, I met uh, Joe uh, 19 years ago, and uh, uh, worked with him off and on over the years. And uh, it was a real blow. This came out of the blue uh, for me, and um, it's a big loss uh, for uh, for a lot of people. It's a big loss. Um, he was one of the main reporters in Indonesia for well during SPY and the uh, the twenty fourteen election. Um, he was the guy you go to for leadership and ideas. I mean, he he was the one who was who was marshalling as much as uh, as journalists can be marshaled. He he was definitely a leader in 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 the in our milieu. Yeah. 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 And, um, <clears throat> yeah, he was great in public. I always, uh, ran the JFCC meetings very well and, uh, he was never fearful about the impacts of his reporting either. He took on some very controversial topics and, uh, went again, went against, uh, the grain when it was appropriate to do so without any fear. Um, and he was funny. He, uh, one time, there was a presentation by the director general of mining and the official was explaining the policy, introducing the, the plan to ban raw mineral ore exports. And uh, Joe got up and asked a question and said, isn't that just the same as shooting yourself in the head? Uh, <laughs> uh, I always called him Joe headshot Cochran after that. <laughs> but that didn't limit his access. He, um, managed to get some pretty big uh, luminaries to 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 come come to JFCC meetings. They, they didn't shy away. Um, yeah. I remember sitting in on because I was on the board. We would be generating ideas for for panels and for coverage, and and he would always be, like, yeah, let's get so and so. I've got his contacts, and he was very. He was very generous with his mm, yeah. um, with his uh, WhatsApp contact list. 
he was, um, yeah, he really galvanized um, the, the foreign correspondence um, group um, and yeah. just incredibly generous with a newly arrived foreign correspondent who um, had absolutely no idea about anything to do with Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, he was generous, never, never petty about anything. And um, he, he made some breakthroughs. One groundbreaking report that uh, really stood out in my mind to this day is uh, one that he published in the New York Times about female genitalia mutilation, which uh, you know just uh, is one of these enormous problems in Indonesia that just never gets any coverage domestically and very little internationally either. And um, he was able to find some sources and come up with some numbers, and um, that was that was a real breakthrough. Um, he also covered the Neil Bantelman case uh, extremely well. Yeah. Very yes. few people who did that at that time, 10 years ago. He, he was on that. Um, there, there, were, there were a couple of reporters that were really reporting the hell out of that case. And I think that for him, um, <sighs> the thing about Joe Cochran is that the guy had a temper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he could yeah. motivate it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Neil Bantelman. would just be... Fuming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the Neil Bannelman case just really summed up the, um, the, what, what, what irked him about just how capricious and thuggish, uh, police, frankly, can be and how they can use, they could, they can misuse their position to cover up for their own incompetence. And so he was, he was at that, like, uh, the bull after a red flag. He was he was tenacious and unsparing of his um of his criticism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've cool. um I've I've seen the Joe the, the Joe Cochran um uh eruptions were never directed at me. Um he was a very friendly I think you know I've seen him have a few drinks. He is just a he was a lovely, lovely guy. Um and I he was a mentor. He was he was a mentor for me. I'm going to miss him. Rest in peace, Joe. Well, with that, we move on to the events of the, of the week. We have a, uh, a a potential. There's a potential for guess what? A general to join cabinet. <laughs> you want to walk <laughs> us through that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> Hard to find space for them. Yeah. Geez. Page one. Hold page one. <laughs> but yeah, so um, Hadi uh, Jajanto, who retired this month, he was uh, head of the Air Force. He appears poised for a cabinet position, according to media reports. Um, there's speculation that there's going to be a, a cabinet reshuffle. A plum position is going to uh, possibly him and the, uh, the chair of the National Mandate Party. He's a close ally yeah. of the president. But yeah, uh, God, um, more generals in cabinet. Uh, yeah, crazy. but this one, this is actually big because uh, Hattie Chayanto is pretty moderate uh, and he's somebody who came up from fairly obscure origins within the military because he had personal rapport with Joko Widodo circa 2010 when both were in solo. Therefore, Chayanto, who's an air marshal, is not your prototypical army general, and therefore he uh, can 
somewhat, I think, dilute kind of the uh, overbearing security mentality of uh, the preponderance of generals in the Widodo administration. But it's going to depend which cabinet post he receives uh, because the, there's a real stark contrast between the two scenarios here. One would be that uh, he replaces uh, Mohammed Mahfoud, the coordinating politics and security minister, who is practically, I think, the uh, only civilian in any security-related post in the administration. And you know, Mahfoud has not been a star performer. Um, you know, he really stood out and, and was courageous as the uh, constitutional court chief justice uh, around 2013, 2014, when he really defended the Anti-Corruption Commission. But in the Widodo administration, he's been uh, a little bit lackluster. I think he, he hasn't had much scope uh, to maneuver, or, given the other officials around him. But uh, nonetheless, his removal from the cabinet would be unfortunate, if for no other reason than the fact that uh, it would uh, oust a civilian and insert former military chief Chianto in his place. So that would be somewhat unfortunate. Alternatively, the other scenario is that Chianto replaces Moldoko, the presidential chief of staff, and that would have a big impact in terms of eliminating a big source of friction and rancor and uh, destabilization of rules-based democracy. That, that's what uh, Moldoko has essentially been in, involved with by uh, trying to undermine Partai Democrat, the opposition party of the Udiono family. Uh, yes. And that got uh, hit on the head again, didn't it? A, a judge said that, no, in fact, members of the president's inner circle cannot organize or <laughs> can, cannot um, a- attempt to be leader of the opposition. Right. Moldoko uh, brought on board uh, Yusril Iza Mahendra, a very controversial legal system manipulator and former law minister and former state secretary from the Idiono era to pursue a case against Partido Democrat trying to invalidate the party's current bylaws based ostensibly on behalf of a couple former Partido Democrat members who were ousted by the current leadership. But really, that, that was useful working on behalf of Moldoko. Moldoko wanted to nix these bylaws in order to revert back to a set of bylaws three or four sets ago uh, from 2005 when extraordinary party congresses were easy to get together, in which case Moldoko would use those rules to put up a new extraordinary congress and make himself party chair. So this is the, this is the plan that they concocted. And the judges struck it down and said that uh, the court has no um, jurisdiction over uh, the, the rules that a political party wants to use for itself. Uh, they're not subject to the uh, statutes that Mahendra was, or Yusril was quoting. So, uh, so that was a setback for Moldoko, and I think that's going to reflect poorly on him, and that may very well jeopardize his position as uh, presidential chief of staff in favor of Chianta. That would sort of make sense in a lot of ways. It would, uh, you'd think. Um, <laughs> yeah, <you> think. <laughs> Logically. <laughs> yeah. Is there a, but <laughs> he's still there and we've been talking about this for a year. That's right. Now. Yeah. 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 I think this is, this is the sixth time I've made this prediction. So, I mean, mm, we're, we're pretty often mm, being wrong the seventh a, time. You, Come on. You'll okay. get a winner one day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. There's got to be an ambassadorship for the guy somewhere. Send him. Yeah. Um, he's disgraced himself and there's a candidate to take his job, you know, uh, you would think that things don't look good for him. Uh, I think what surprises me is, is that it's not more of a, more of an issue than it. I'm talking about Motoko. 
trying to interfere with the with the inner workings of the opposition party mm. sets off so many bells and whistles. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm shocked. Well, I'm. Uh, it is shocking, shocked, but not is, surprised. No, even by Indonesian standards and the, and the scurrilous types of intrigues and skullduggery that goes on, it's shocking mm. that uh, first of all anybody would try to simply spuriously claim out of nowhere that they in fact are the chair of this party and not the actual chair of the party. Uh, plus the fact mm. that it's somebody who is a former military chief uh, and the uh, head of the presidential staff office. It's, uh, it's really an, an outrage, uh, I think. And also in pursuit of this goal, uh, Moldoko has also filed legal suits against his um, you know, against a cabinet minister from PDI Perjuanga and Yasono Lauli and lost to that suit, uh, although he may appeal it yet. Okay, well, let's move on to fisheries because there's some good news there. There's, this, this is uh, what I'm calling a twofer. A twofer because uh, on the one hand, uh, we've got some um, an interesting idea from the uh, new, well, it's not that new, it's about a year old, the fisheries minister, Sakti um, Trangono. He was talking in Glasgow about introducing a quota system uh, for fisheries. And this is one where uh, they would be auctioned off um, and you'd be allowed to fish a certain amount of catch and it would be regulated and uh, you would protect you know, species. Is it done in the EU, Canada, Australia, New Zealand? It's credited with uh, saving the, the cod fisheries off of Newfoundland. Um, there was even the... There was a talk at the Indonesia Pavilion, as, as you say, on uh, investment in human resources and, and, um, technology that need to go along with that. Uh, the second part is that his predecessor had, had his, um, a sentence, uh, nearly doubled to nine years. <laughs> yeah. On appeal. Yeah. He, he appealed his on original appeal. sentence for five years and the judges came back and said, uh, no, that sentence was uh, correct, uh, except that it was too short, and we give you an extra four years, and I uh, served nine years. So the Schadenfreude um, was particularly tasty when I, <laughs> when, I, when, I when I read that. <laughs> but let's go back to quotas. Schadenfreude is that it's like a, a barracuda that catches maluku, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what what um. Uh, I love the idea. I think it gets an A for effort. Um, I don't see a path for introducing a quota system um, that would be terribly easy uh, because of the investment that you would need. You'd have to have you'd have to have the human resources. You'd have to have the infrastructure. You'd have to have the technology. You'd have to have people on board. You'd have to have governance and. I, I, this looks like a really long slog. Once that started, how much backing does this have in cabinet? Uh, yeah, none yet. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. It is a hard slog. I think that if there was obvious high-level backing and enthusiasm for it from other ministers, uh, it might be possible with some technological breakthroughs, specifically remote area internet connectivity, high, yeah. high bandwidth kind of ability to uh, monitor all these vast stretches of the giant archipelago with um, police uh, catch. And uh, that's uh, that's a stretch. So 
Yeah, the minister is talking about starting this uh, new framework early next year, <laughs> a few months from now. Uh, but there's a government regulation, a PP, that needs to come out first. And um, yeah, I think this this it would have to be a slow transition. But it it is encouraging that he's uh, seemingly sending the right signals and sounding the right messages and um, putting things forward in the right direction. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, there's no matter how good the regulatory framework is on paper, there's always scope for abuse. And selling quotas uh, has uh, been fraught with all sorts of uh, wrongdoing in other sectors in the past. And so that would have to be something that uh, is subject to some very good oversight and controls. Well, Eddie Proboa was uh, put in jail for uh, kickbacks on uh, sales of export quotas of lobster larva, which basically uh, is about the most rapacious thing you can do in fisheries. Um, yeah. d- do, you, do you see a connection between that and the government thinking, oh, you know, having a having an oh shit moment like this, this fishery, the, the fisheries are really corrupt. We've got to do something. Um, like realizing that like Susi, Ibu Susi got mm. ousted in favor of this guy. So I wondered if the government was thinking, no, we just can't hand this out as a, as a perk to some hack for a member of the coalition. We got to get serious about this. Sadly, no. Uh, I think Sakti Trangono is there because of his campaign contributions dating all the way back to 2014. Uh, he's a business person who amassed a fortune in telecommunications towers. So he has no background in maritime affairs. And in fact, he had been the vice defense minister under Prabowo Subianto. And Prabowo is the one who had put the previous fisheries minister, Eddie Prabowo, in place. Uh, and then that, that arrest prompted this vacancy and Widodo saw fit to replace Prabowo's right-hand man, Eddie Prabowo, with Prabowo's vice minister, Sakti Trangono. Uh, so it doesn't really uh, look like a major transition on paper. In fact, I think Sakti Trangono and Prabowo Subianto do not have a lot of link up and overlap. I think it was sort of a coincidence that Sakti Trangono was vice defense minister, but nonetheless, there is that, that shared history in the defense uh, ministry from last year. So I think that uh, Sakti Trangono is just trying to find a way to put the sector on a more sound footing because there was the rapacious abuse in the pre Suzy Pujastuti era mm-hmm. uh, prior to mm-hmm. 2014. Uh, and then what she did was she just cracked down on uh, the illegal fishing and uh, uh, large scale unreported fishing and so on. And um, that was uh, successful in eliminating a lot of the waywardness, but there was not a lot of momentum towards building up a, a sustainable, proper, modern, uh, productive uh, fishery sector. And I think that that now is something that uh, Trangono is, is looking towards. And as an outsider to the sector, can he do it? Um, yeah, yeah, maybe, but yeah. it's going to require a lot of technology and a lot of backing. And then there's also the vested interests in the sector, the too. Interests. They haven't gone away. Yeah. <laughs> They have not gone the, away. They're, yeah, the, <laughs> the AP received a Pulitzer Prize for its reporting uh, published in 2015 about uh, uh, 550 workers working as slaves uh, on Benjina Island in eastern Indonesia and Maluku uh, for a Thai conglomerate there. And uh, one of the major questions raised basically in my mind by that reporting was uh, how different were the conditions for workers for any one of several other major conglomerates operating in that region at that time. 
and uh, all those companies are basically still around. So there's uh, there's some very determined and uh, formidable interests uh, uh, operating in the sector. And are they going to want to change to a very convoluted quota production system? Um, I tend to doubt it. A convoluted quota system that would require transparent uh, administration with buy-in from everyone and a uh, an enforcement mechanism that is is effective and timely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened in Canada, and I remember when I was a kid, that was there was a time in the 80s when the cod fisheries often Newfoundland collapsed and they just yeah. had to ban you're you're from Maine, so I've been I've headline been to, news there. I've been to Newfoundland, and uh, the economic scarring from what happened in the 1990s uh, was still evident. It was incredible, absolute catastrophe, and yeah. the catastrophe uh, brought on a ferocious crackdown on the fisheries and just an overhaul. And I wonder if, like, what kind of shock? What kind of what would have to happen? For something like that to happen in Indonesia, because it, it it seems to be so widespread. Yeah, well, yeah. One of the problems is that by Indonesian standards, the fisheries sector uh, surprisingly is relatively small as a percentage of GDP. So mm. um, yeah, and it's mostly concentrated out in the eastern part of the country. So uh, right. it, it doesn't have the clout and the visibility actually that it should. It's very much on the margins. It's yeah. it, 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 it's it's um, a marginal part of the economy for marginal people in a marginal part of the country. Yeah. So that's why it doesn't get the oversight. But there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, there's a lot of potential. Speaking of good intentions, um, what's this about possibly decommissioning nine gigawatts of coal-fired power plants rather than one? Right. Yeah, so, uh, so along with the pronouncement made by Trangono about fisheries in Glasgow... Uh, also, uh, Arafan Tasri, the energy minister, made a pronouncement about decommissioning coal-fired plants. And so this is like a driving energy policy with a yo-yo uh, because uh, hmm. officials came out earlier this year and announced ambitious targets for decommissioning coal-fired power plants. And then a document issued basically by Coordinating Minister Luhut Benjayatan uh, backpedaled furiously on, on that promise. Uh, but now the, the energy minister went to Glasgow and came out with an even more bold decommissioning target number, nine gigawatts, than uh, officials back in May had mentioned. So it's hard to know what to um, have credence in, really. Um, is that uh, depending on getting a backing from, um, uh, I mean, foreign assistance? Because I had been talking about that. We could do it faster yeah. if you give us money. Uh, yeah, the, that's something that the Indonesian government is really emphasize, emphasizing heavily. That was uh, very evident in Widodo's four-minute speech uh, to Glasgow. Uh, a large chunk of that was uh, a plaintive appeal for committing resources from developed economies to developing countries like Indonesia for you know, climate change, energy transition, as, as well as adaptation. So, uh, yeah, I think that there would be a contingency there for sure. Uh, but uh, by the same token, you know, the Glasgow did make some progress, I think, uh, with uh, the ADB announcing an interesting uh, energy transition mechanism and uh, also a pledge by PLN to work with the uh, World Resources Institute on uh, 
um, uh, mechanisms for uh, uh, rolling out clean energy faster. Just to put this in context, though, decommissioning nine gigawatts of coal-fired power stations is a nice start, but isn't there something in the order of 60 gigawatts of uh, coal-fired uh, power station capacity out there? I mean, it's a start. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, at least uh, uh, in terms of emissions, presumably this would focus on the, um, the older, oldest, ones, right? dirtiest technology. Yeah. 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 I guess, I guess what I'm, I'm saying is it's important to, to see that, to frame this. It, okay. Yeah. It's a step in the right direction, but a, it, it's, it's only a step and it's a moderate, modest one that you know, claiming victory and the problem solved. I mean, there's a, there's a chance. That, oh, wait, they're, they're going to go from one to nine. Well, nine is still not a lot, and we're talking about at the end of the decade. So, <laughs> you know, mm. is it good news? I don't know. I, or, or is it? Uh, we'll see what happens when the vested interests uh, get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and there's also sort of a ray of hope in the form of market forces because uh, you know, the price of coal is uh, skyrocketing right now. And I think, uh, as we've talked about in the podcast in the past with uh, Abitumiwa, uh, there's a rationale for rolling out solar energy that is uh, increasingly strong. And it's uh, you know, very conceivable that in a short while it's going to be more expensive to run an existing coal-fired power plant than it is to construct a brand new solar energy plant. Right. Yeah. Market forces may make this whole question mute. Moot. I almost said mute. I should be muted. Uh, <laughs> th thanks a lot, Kevin. Uh, we're going to leave it there. And um, you are, you've got a little bit of travel coming up. We might be on hiatus until the beginning of December, but we'll keep you posted. Bye for now. Bye. And that's the pod. For a free trial of Kevin's Reformasi weekly newsletter, go to reformasi.info. Our editing and sound engineering is done by Stephen Handoko. Music is by the Blue Dot Sessions. And if you're listening to us through a podcast app, please subscribe and share us on social media. It would mean a lot. As always, you can reach us at hello at onthelevel.id. This podcast is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now.